Well, we're getting back into our study in the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at, Lord willing, uh, the entire chapter of Revelation 16. So if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to that chapter, that'll be our sermon text this morning. And out of respect for the Word of God, I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Revelation 16, verse 1, John writes, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters Say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, And they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays away, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake Uh, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you've been with us for any of these uh, studies in the book of Revelation, or maybe if you haven't, but you've been reading your Bible and you've seen all these different passages that talk about the wrath of God, you know, I don't know, maybe you wonder sometimes, why does the Bible have so much to say about God's wrath and God's just judgment? Or maybe you've been in a church context where you never hear these things, and maybe you wonder, I didn't realize the Bible had so much to say because I never hear it. And why would that, why would that be? Sometimes, uh, we in the churches are are hesitant to preach on things that seem unpleasant, that may not seem that may seem off-putting. Why does the Bible talk about 
God's wrath. So, so often, another way to put that is, why does God talk about his wrath in his word so often? And certainly the book of Revelation has its fair share to say about that subject. It must be for good reason. It must be for good reason that God's word has so many passages in it that deal with this great subject. It must be with good reason that the last book of our Bibles, the book of Revelation, has so much to say on this subject. You know, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, I always say there's a a good number of verses that are good for us to, to commit to memory. And one of the first passages that my old pastor had me memorize was 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that passage is about Scripture, and it says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's a fancy way of saying that God spoke it, that what you read in the Bible is God's Word. When you speak, what happens? You exhale. It's saying this is God's Word given to us as His people. And it also says in that text, in 2 Timothy 3, that the the Word of God is breathed out by God for the purpose that, quote, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. In other words, everything God has said in his word is given to you and I for a purpose. There's no filler in the Bible. Now, if you ever went to college and had to write uh, papers, you maybe none of you did this, but some people I've, I've heard write, they, they put filler in their papers. It has to be 12 pages. Oh, I've got eight. What do I do? Add some quotes. Find some things to make it feel, you know, increase the font size. Uh, you know, God doesn't do that. God doesn't put filler in Scripture. It, what does Paul say? All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, correction, rebuking, and, and, and training in righteousness to make us complete and equipped for every good. It's, it's to make us equipped for everything God wants you to do. You need, we need, all that Scripture says in some way to equip us to live the Christian life. And so chapters like this one that may make us a little uncomfortable, maybe we we aren't sure what certain parts of it mean, are given for the same purpose, to equip us for every good work, to equip you and I to live the Christian life in a way that is pleasing to God. And so we neglect passages like this to our own detriment. We might not know why we need this kind of a chapter or this kind of a book, but we do, otherwise God would not have given it. And so we shouldn't neglect it for whatever reason. Now in chapter 15, if you were here last time, uh, in chapter 15, the shortest chapter in Revelation, John said that he saw, remember these are all visions he's seen. He says uh, he saw another great and amazing sign in heaven. And what was that sign? It was, a, it was a, a vision of seven angels having the seven plagues of God's wrath. And those plagues were contained in seven golden bowls. John says that with these seven plagues, verse 1 of chapter 15, with those seven plagues, the wrath of God is what? Finished. If we're getting towards the end of the book, towards the end of the story. There's been a lot of things, a lot of visions in this book. Um, I'll, I'll say this, uh, for, for those of you who have not been here Revelation is a book of, of visions. It's a book of signs. It's not, uh, as sometimes you may have heard this preached this way, it is not John getting a videotaped projection for him of the future as it unfolds. And John being so ignorant because he's a caveman, so they would say, that he describes them in ways that make no sense to us. He describes, you know, uh, certain things as cobra, that we think of as cobra helicopters. It's not what it is. He's given visions, 
that symbolize literal truths. That's revelation. John, John knew exactly what he was seeing. He described what he saw in this book, the way it was given to him. And those symbols, dragons and beasts and all these things, are meant to teach us literal truths about what's going to happen and what is happening in the world around us. And so with these seven bowls of God's wrath, are there literal bowls? I don't think so. But the vision of it, these plagues, is it's a picture of God's Wrath. Now, as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, numbers, different numbers are very significant. And the number seven might be the most common number in the book. And the number seven is, it, it's a number that indicates completeness. And so, especially in this book, when you hear the number, for instance, seven, like we do so often in this chapter, your ears should perk up. You should be saying, there's a reason that here there are not ten plagues like in the Exodus, but there's seven. It's not because it's a less less wrathful thing than the Exodus. It's because seven is a number of completeness. God's wrath is being completely poured out through these seven, the vision of these seven bowls being poured out of his wrath. Now, in chapter 16, in this chapter, John, what he does is he, one by one, he recounts for us what he sees in this vision, what God gave him to see. And it. He, he recounts these seven angels, each in turn pouring out their bowl and what that bowl contained, and what part of the world it was poured out on. And, you know, if if you're reading that, if you were listening as I was reading along and, and going through each plague one by one, I hope that your mind kind of, at least in part, turned to the, this, the book of Exodus. That's not, a, that's not an accident. When you read a number of plagues being poured out on God's enemies, that should be the first thing you think of, and that's not an accident. It's pictured in Exodus language on purpose. Much of this uses Old Testament imagery to teach what we are supposed to to learn. John's description brings back to mind, by necessity, those ten plagues that God poured out on Pharaoh in Egypt when he was redeeming his people from slavery there in that land. And these plagues in chapter 16, if you've read the book of Revelation before, you might know there are seven seals early in the book on the scroll of God's will, of God's decree, and Christ the Lamb is the only one who's worthy to unlock and break those those seals and open the scroll and administer its contents and execute God's will. And there are seven trumpets, seven trumpets of God's wrath, announcing God's wrath, warning of God's wrath. And now you have seven bowls uh, of God's wrath being poured out, and the bowls follow the same order as the trumpets. The same things that were affected by trumpets one through four are affected by bowls one through four. That's that's on purpose. We're to connect the one to the other. The one warns of the judgment, and the judgments fall in part in those chapters. Well, now God's judgments in full are finally poured out on those who do not heed God's warnings through those trumpets of his wrath back in chapters 8 through 11. Now, in the midst of these bowls of God's wrath being poured out on the unbelieving and the unrepentant, I don't know if you noticed as I was reading it, but something that you might think of as unexpected took place. And what is that? Towards the middle of the first part of the chapter, we find God's wrath that sometimes can make us so uncomfortable, God's wrath being praised. You know, Revelation, it's been said, and I think I've said it a few times at least, Revelation is a book of worship. We might think of it as some scary book full of frightening visions and apocalyptic things. 
Revelation's a book of worship for God's people. And so what do you see in the middle of, of, the, of this chapter? You see God's wrath, his justice, being praised by an angel and even being praised, oddly enough, by, what does it say? The altar praising his justice in verses 5 through 7. His justice is being praised and spoken of as righteous and just. Nothing unfair about God's wrath. Verse 7, the altar says, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. True and just, nothing unfair, nothing unright, nothing wrong with God's wrath. All just, all true. You could say that in some ways the praise of God's wrath and justice and judgment is the center of this chapter. It's the, it's the emphasis of this chapter is not only to display and warn of God's judgment, but to praise it, to praise him for it, to, to give him glory for it. We should praise God for all of his perfections, including his wrath, his holiness, and his justice, and his just judgment. You know, many of us, when we read Revelation, maybe I'm sure you've probably been here, maybe you're doing this right now as I'm reading it and, and preaching on it, we tend to get kind of caught up in, in treating it like a puzzle book. And we think, we think to ourselves, you know, I have to figure out what all these little details mean. Everything must have a, a, a particular significance that I'm supposed to have, you know, find the key to unlock and understand all these things. And as Dr. Johnson's book on Revelation, I think, puts it, it's not a, it's not a puzzle book. It's a picture book. And when you treat a picture book like a puzzle book, you're going to go wrong somewhere. It's a picture book. You, you understand Revelation better than you think you do. If you just let it paint the picture that it's, that the book is painting for us and read it that way. And so one of the things I'd like to avoid this morning is, you know, what's the old saying? Losing the forest for the sake of the trees. I don't want to ignore the trees. We like the trees, but we want to keep the forest in mind, the bigger picture of the picture God's painting here. So I'm going to apologize ahead of time in that I'm not going to answer all the questions you may have. I probably couldn't answer all the questions you might have, or even that I might have, on what each detail means, on what the word Armageddon means, although we've touched on that earlier in the service. We want to keep the forest in mind, and so we're going to touch on the high points this morning, Lord willing, of this passage, and hopefully that will help us in our reading and understanding of these things. So uh, we're going to focus on a few main things that I believe the text itself, by God's uh, inspiration, is emphasizing for us, and that, that is that a few things. One, God's wrath is certain. One day God's wrath is going to be poured out in its fullness upon the wicked and the unrepentant. And that same wrath that's poured out in its fullness will be the cause for great praise and rejoicing on behalf of God's people. If you're a Christian, one day you are going to be rejoicing at God's just judgment. Rejoicing at it. Praising God for it. And the last thing I think, and I think this might be uh, as important in our text as praising God's wrath and justice, is that God's wrath and justice are just and holy. Just and true. Just meaning righteous. There's nothing wrong with God's just judgment. So we're going to see, Lord willing, three things from our text this morning. We're going to see, first, the fullness and finality of God's wrath. Second, we're going to see the praise of God's wrath. And thirdly, we're going to see the just nature of God's So the first thing that our text points out to us in verse 1 is the fullness and finality of God's wrath. It's 
It's pictured for us by those seven bowls, seven being the number of completeness. And verse 1, John says this, Then I heard a loud voice from where? From the temple. Whose dwelling place is the temple? Who dwells in the temple? God. It's the place where God meets with man. The temple is a picture of God's dwelling. And the voice from the temple says what? Telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So who's commanding this wrath to be poured out? God himself. God himself is is commanding and will command at some point for this to be done. Now the fact that John spends so much time going through the pouring out of each of those seven bowls in this chapter and throughout this chapter should also, I think, emphasize for us the finality of it and the fullness of it. God, you know, John could have just written, the Lord, you know, commanded, pour out these seven bowls, and they did. End of chapter. He doesn't. He goes through each bowl, one after the other, and, and tells us in great detail what he saw and what these bowls were poured out on and what the effect of it was. And, and not only that, but notice the bowls of God's wrath are, are poured out, in a sense, on every part of the earth. Every part of the earth, it's poured out on the earth, verse 2. It's poured out on the sea, in verse 3. It's poured out on the rivers and springs of water, uh, in verse 4. It's poured out on the sun, in verse 8. The throne of the beast, verse 10. The great river Euphrates, in verse 12. And even in verse 17, on the air itself. Same, same kinds of things that were mentioned in the trumpets in chapters 8 through 11. In other words, nothing, nothing's left untouched. Everything is involved. God's wrath is going to be poured out one day in all of its fullness. All the outpourings of God's wrath throughout history have been foreshadowings of this wrath to come. All all the outpourings of God's wrath that you read in the scriptures, in the Old Testament especially, but also in the New, have been, so to speak, warning shots, reminders that God will judge. And he still does that now. You know, we, sometimes I think we read the, the, the Bible and we kind of think, well, you know, we say things like this. Back in Bible times, back in Bible times, well, no, we don't see miracles all the time, but God still judges. In, the, in history, in this world, does, does God still judge nations? Absolutely. We, God has not changed. His ways have not changed. You, know, you think about the, the, the Holocaust of abortion in our country, and people act like, well, you know, God doesn't care about these things. God cares about these things. And, you know, by his mercy so far, he has not judged, although I think in some ways, the hardening of hearts of our country, the lack of the fear of God, that is a judgment of God. Read Romans 1. Sometimes he gives the people over to their lusts and their unbelief and their hatred of him. I think in some ways, this is an act of God's judgment. We should should pray that God might grant repentance to our land, that God might grant revival and heal our land and turn us back to the fear of God and from these wicked things. Nothing nothing is left untouched. All all the judgments you see in the scriptures are foreshadowings and and hints of the wrath that is to come on the last day. Whether whether it be the flood of Noah's day, think of all the judgments you can think of, the the, the great mighty outpourings, the miraculous outpourings of God's wrath, especially in the Old Testament. Think of the flood of Noah's day. A worldwide flood where one family was spared and two of every animal was, was saved. Think of the fire and brimstone that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. Think of the ten plagues of Egypt in the Exodus. 
Think about the parting of the Red Sea and that Red Sea crashing back down upon Pharaoh and his chariots. All of those things are reminders of God's just judgment and wrath. And I don't think it's an accident that the world around us, especially mockers and scoffers, they mock and they scoff those particular acts. Why is it that so many unbelieving biblical scholars mock and deny the flood? Oh, it wasn't a worldwide flood. How many of you have heard that? It was a localized flood in a certain area because, you know, that couldn't possibly happen because they have to see everything as being able to be explained by natural causes, by scientific explanations. So there couldn't have been a worldwide flood, but there was. Sodom and Gomorrah, how many of you have heard people kind of mock that and say, well, that that couldn't have happened, and it couldn't have happened for that particular sin because, you know, nobody thinks that's wrong anymore, those kinds of, of heinous sins, but but it did and it is, and God still does judge for these things. Even even the Exodus, there was a movie out recently, a few years ago, I think it was, I won't don't recommend it, but they tried to explain the Red Sea parting in two by natural causes, which is a silly thing to say the least. Reminds me of Second Peter chapter three, verses three through seven. Peter says this, knowing this, first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. There's the key. Why do they scoff? Why do they scoff judgment? Because they are following their own sinful desires, and judgment would be very uncomfortable for them to think about. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? What coming are they talking about? Judgment. You know, I've been sitting a long time, that lightning bolt hasn't struck me yet. Jesus hasn't come back yet, so why should I expect him to come back? Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It says, but they deliberately, it says, for they deliberately overlook this fact, or forget this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. They say everything's just been going on as it always has. And Peter, by the inspiration of the Spirit, says, not so fast. You're deliberately forgetting and omitting something that God has already done and, and committed a worldwide judgment. He's already done it once, and he will do it in a greater sense. Again, they deliberately overlooked the flood of Noah's day. They refused to heed the message of the flood, that God will indeed judge the wicked, and he will do it on a worldwide scale. And I, I think that's the real reason why so many skeptics and scoffers in our day mock and cast doubt on the notion of the flood itself. They, they, it means they understand the lesson of the flood better than they want to admit. It means they know deep down in their heart of hearts, God does judge, God will judge, and one day he will finally judge and pour out all of his wrath. Every time you see a rainbow, every time you see a rainbow, to a Christian it should be a reminder that in Christ, God has set his war bow up. He's put it on the shelf. Right? It's not aimed down at you anymore, it's aimed up. But that same rainbow should tell the wicked that God's judgment is going to come again one day, and they should repent and look to Christ for salvation. God will judge. Finally, in verse 17, John writes this, The seventh angel, the last one, 
poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. In other words, it's finished. All of God's wrath has finally been and will finally have been poured out. Well, the second thing I want to take notice from our chapter here is the praise of God's wrath. The praise of God's wrath. Look at verses 5 through 7. John writes there, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just, you know, righteous, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Who brought the judgments? The angels poured them out, but whose are they? You, God, the Holy One. You brought these judgments, for they, the, the wicked, they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your, are your judgments. Now, God's just judgment and wrath upon the wicked and the unrepentant as as much as, it, as it's, a, it's a frightening, a frightful thing for us to comprehend and think about. His wrath upon all the evil in this world is a cause for praise among God's people. It should be. It is meant to be a cause for praise. It's a fearful thing to think about in some ways, just like this chapter, like the rest of the book. It's a fearful thing. Revelation, much of Revelation, involves what we would think of as fearful things, but it's not written to frighten Christians. Something I feel like I have to say multiple times as we go through the book. Revelation is not written to frighten you if you're a believer in Christ. It's, it's written to do just the opposite. If you're a believer in Christ, if your sins have been forgiven, if you have been accepted by God as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, accounted to you by faith, if you're adopted as a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, this book is not written to frighten you. It's not written to disturb you. It's not written to give you worry and anxiety. It's written to do the exact opposite. It is written to comfort you and encourage you. It is written to give you hope. It's written to comfort the suffering church. In many places on this earth, we don't see it so much in our land yet, in many places in this world, professing Christ can be a death sentence. Being baptized can be bad for your health in some parts of this world. And the message of Revelation is God will judge. These things will not be let go. God will make all of these things right. Now, if you're reading as a believer, if you're a Christian, if you're reading Revelation in such a way, or if you're being taught this book in such a way as to become frightened by it rather than be comforted by it, with all due respect, may I say, you're reading it wrong, or you're being taught it wrong. It's not, if someone's, if a teacher or a preacher is frightening you as a Christian by this book, they're not teaching it right. They're going the exact, it would be like reading 1 John to shake your assurance. It makes no sense. It's not why God gave it. God will be glorified in his just judgment. His just judgment and wrath, as frightful as they are to think about, we are going to praise him for it one day. And we should be ready to praise him for it even now as we think about it and read texts like this. God is going to be glorified in his wrath upon the wicked just as much as he's glorified in his amazing grace that he lavishes upon you and I in Jesus Christ. God is not embarrassed by his justice or his holiness. In fact, God's holiness and wrath, 
Think about this. His holiness and wrath are in no way at odds with his love and grace. God's perfections are not at odds with each other. His love is a holy love. His wrath is a loving wrath for good reasons. They aren't contradictory things. God would not be a good or loving God if he did not hate and oppose evil and sin. And everyone knows this, don't they? How many times has an unbeliever or someone who mocks the faith maybe told you, here here it is, something like this. If God were a good and loving God, why would he allow X, Y, or Z? Fill in the blank. Something awful happens. You know, if if there really is a God and he's loving, why does he let this happen? And Revelation Revelation says, oh, he's going to take care of that. He's going to make that right. Because he does oppose evil and sin. He hates sin. He cannot look upon sin. He's going to make all these things right. All the wickedness in this world, God will make these things right. God would not be a good or loving God if he did not judge. Heaven would not be heaven if God did not make all things right on that last day. It wouldn't be heaven. We would not be praising God. He wouldn't be perfect if he did not do that. Think about all the injustices that you have seen in your life, whether personally or on the world stage. All those things that you you shake your head and say, oh, this should not be. This is not how this should be. Those are the things God is going to make right and undo. You know, a great part of the misery of living in this fallen world of sin is the injustice that you see all around us. The shedding of the blood of saints and prophets, verse 6, is a good example. And that's going to be made right. You could say in some ways, this is this chapter is it's similar in, in a different way uh, to what Paul says in Romans 8, chapter, Romans 8, verses 18 to 19. There he says, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing, or not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, or to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. One of the ways of looking at that is that it's God making it right, making it more than right. Now, Paul knew about sufferings. Paul was in jail when he wrote half of his letters. Paul was beheaded under Caesar Nero for nothing but preaching the gospel. Paul suffered. When Paul said suffering, Paul knew what he was talking about, much better than any of us possibly do. And he says that those sufferings, even the things that Paul went through, shipwrecks, being beaten, being stoned and left for dead, being betrayed by his own countrymen, what does he say? It's not even a drop in the bucket compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in the saints, in the people of God. That's heaven. That's that's what God is going to do on that last day. He's going to reveal the sons of God, and all creation is eager and waiting for it, what God is going to do. And that brings us to our third and last uh, point from our text, and that's the just nature, the just nature of God's wrath. Look again at verses 5 through 6, that same praise of God's wrath. What does it praise his wrath for? For it being just and righteous. He says, just are you, verse 5, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. In other words, God does not change. He's the eternal God. Just are you, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. So God is praised because he is just. His wrath, his his judgment is just or fair or righteous. He is the Holy One, verse 5. And it's notice it's because he brings those judgments that he can be called 
just. It says, just are you, verse 5, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. Why? For you brought these judgments. It's an, it's an evidence of his holiness and his just or righteous nature. In other words, in some way, God would not be holy and just if he did not on that last day judge the unrepentant and those who have harmed his church. And why is that? He says, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, so you have given them blood to drink. In other words, God, God in this vision, we're being assured by this vision that God will make the punishment fit the crime. He will make it fit the crime. And more than that, God pours out his wrath because he loves his people. He cares for his people. That's why it's meant to encourage Christians. God's wrath is poured out on behalf of his people who are persecuted and martyred for their profession of Christ. When the wicked harm the apple of God's eye in shedding the blood of the saints and the prophets, God doesn't take it lightly. That's what this vision tells us. God will make that right. And what does the angel say in verse 6? This is what they deserve. God does not give them something they don't deserve. He gives them what they do deserve. The judge of all the earth, as Abraham called him, will do right. His judgments are true and just. And notice one more thing in our text. Maybe you noticed it as I was reading the text this morning. Three times in this chapter, we are told that even as God's wrath is being poured out, the wicked don't repent. That might be the most frightening part of the chapter, to imagine they're seeing in this vision, they're seeing God's wrath there more than that. They're experiencing the first parts of God's wrath. And what do they do? What do they not do? They don't repent. They don't give God glory. In fact, they curse God's name. To the last breath, they curse God. Their true colors are being shown in this vision. Look at verse 9. They were scorched by the fierce heat. And what did they do? They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. And here it is. They did not repent and give him glory. In the vision, they still had breath in their lungs. They still had the opportunity to repent and give God glory and say, you are right and my sin is being exposed for what it is. They still would not repent. Verse 10 to 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. And there it is again. They did not repent of their deeds. Even God pouring out his wrath at the beginnings of it wasn't enough to turn them from their sin and their hatred of God and his people. Finally, verse 21, the last verse of the chapter says, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And what did they do? They cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. They just cursed God and kept right on. What does it remind you of? Pharaoh. Read the story of the Exodus, the ten plagues. Each time, what happened? I mean, God shows his hand in a miraculous way. He, tell, he sends, I'm paraphrasing and boiling it all down, you know, Reader's Digest version. He sends Pharaoh, or sends Moses to Pharaoh, 
this is what God's going to do if you don't let my people go. He didn't let the people go, and what happened? Just what God said. All these miraculous, awful plagues that can't be explained by natural causes. And each time, what happened? Ten times it happened, it says. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Other times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's a judgment. God gives people over. And just as Pharaoh stood his ground and dug his heels in and wouldn't repent, that's how people, just like Pharaoh, were going to be on the day of wrath. That's how people are now. They're told to God, I hope and pray this is no one here. You hear the gospel over and over again, the call to repent, the offer of the gospel, and they, they just dig their heels in. and They do not repent and turn to Christ by faith. They refuse to give God glory. They don't repent of their wickedness and they curse his name. They go on and on in their sin and unbelief. And so God's wrath and judgment upon them are holy and just. God's just judgment and wrath show him to be holy and true and faithful to his word. And again, when you think about God's wrath, you have to think of the cross. That, that's what Jesus took in your place, if, in my place, if you're a Christian this morning. The full wrath of God that you're seeing in this vision that's so frightful, really that's what Jesus took in your place. He took the full wrath of God for your sins in your place that you might be forgiven and accounted righteous in God's sight in Christ. And so he is to be praised for his justice. You know, God is, because of Christ, God is just. And what, is, what does it say? And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so God is to be praised for his justice and even for his wrath. And may you and I learn to praise God for his glorious grace to us in Christ. When we see pictures of God's wrath, what should you say? You should say, there before the grace of God, that would have been me. All of us in this room deserve the same curses, the same plagues, the same wrath of God for our sin, but for the grace of God go we. If you're a believer, praise God for his grace and praise God for his justice and his wrath. May we learn to be comforted by this by this book and even chapters like this as believers. And I pray that if, if, if you're here and if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, may this chapter lead you to repentance and faith and life in his name. Let's, let's pray.